So for a few weeks, my heart has been drawn to this passage in 1 John chapter 3, and so that's why we're here today. So let me read the text, and then I'll lead us in prayer as we look to what God has for us. And I actually want to begin in chapter 2, verse 28, near the end of chapter 2. The flow of John's thought uh, carrying into chapter 3 really begins there in verse 28. So I'll read from there through chapter 3, verse 3. So hear God's inerrant and eternal word. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is is pure. And this is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our holy, loving Father, indeed what purifying hope you have called your beloved children to in our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you be pleased to help us now to hear and to behold the truth and the goodness and the beauty of all that you have revealed in Jesus through your word. Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, open our eyes afresh, wondrously show us your steadfast love in Jesus, that you might strengthen our faith, that you might enlarge our hope, and that you would deepen our purity before you. Pray, Father, that you would help me now, by your Spirit, to preach your word faithfully and clearly, that you might be glorified and that we all might be benefited by your purposes through your word today. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Pastor Tim in these previous weeks has been preaching from Isaiah. Last week, he was in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 20 to 25. And many of you were here for that. If you didn't have occasion to listen to it, or even if you did and want to hear it again, uh, you can find that on our YouTube channel. And I listened to it and was greatly blessed and encouraged as that passage reveals to us the deadly dangers of idolatry along with the gracious call of God to turn our hearts from idols to him, the living and the true God revealed in Jesus Christ. And we saw there that the danger of idolatry involves the natural sinful inclinations that we all have to trust in and to rely upon anyone or anything other than God alone in Jesus. In other words, it's the inclination to look to and to depend on, for meaning and hope, false gods of our own making and design. False gods such as relationships or goods and material possessions or career or pleasure or hobbies or religion or country or a number of other items that we could identify. And it's not that many of those things are wrong in and of themselves, 
but we easily assign them uh, the identity as being a God in our lives that we depend on, that we rely on for meaning and significance and hope, and how easily we are inclined to such idolatry. In his uh, famous work, The Institutes of Christian Religion, in the 16th century, uh, theologian John Calvin wrote, quote, we may infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols, end quote. In other words, he's rightly observing that our minds, or really our hearts, uh, are like a constant idol factory. We're just drawn to be producing anything that becomes an idol in our life other than the living and true God. Now, one gripping picture of this idolatrous inclination is found among many, many places in Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 2 in verses 11 to 13. And there, God says through his prophet in verse 11, he says, Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. And be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Again, that's Jeremiah 2, verses 11 to 13. And it speaks of, and God declares there, the deadly danger of idolatry, of trusting in false gods. They don't profit. And Tim brought that point out from Isaiah last week as well. False gods are useless and they do not help. They are, as God says there in Jeremiah 2, broken cisterns that hold no water. And the idolatry is identified as evil because it brings, it brings God's judgment. It's identified as evil and brings God's judgment because it is a forsaking of him. A forsaking of him who is the living and true God who alone is the fountain of living waters. And Tim mentioned last week also that the Apostle John, at the end of the book that we're looking at, in 1 John, at the end of that book, chapter 5, the very last statement that John makes in verse 21, he says this, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. That's his last words in that letter. And it indicates to us that God's beloved children, in other words, those who have turned to him from idols and who are repenting from sin and trusting Jesus Christ, God's beloved children nonetheless need to be on guard continually against the danger of idolatry. Now, of course, that brings the question then for Christians of exactly how. How is it that we keep ourselves from idols? And I'm sharing all of that because that's what leads us back to chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, because this text really directly answers the very question of how we can keep ourselves from idols. And we could summarize what God says here in this passage in this way. And this is the, the main truth or the big idea that we see. We can summarize it this way. Look, look, look to the Christ-centered hope you have as God's beloved child. Look, look, look 
to the Christ-centered hope you have as God's beloved child. If indeed you are his beloved child through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, continually look, look, look to the Christ-centered hope you have as a result of being God's beloved child. Now, you may know I'm stealing that look, look, look wording from C.H. Spurgeon's exhortation, which Tim shared in his newsletter video earlier this week, which you can also find that on our YouTube channel. I'm just trying to plug Tim and his messages and his preaching and his video here, just very blessed and benefited by these things. So I'm stealing all of that. But that's the focus of the passage. God is saying, in essence, look, look, look to the Christ-centered hope that you have as God's beloved child. He wants to focus us as his children on this hope. And so what we find in verses 1 to 3 then of 1 John 3 is that Christ-centered hope produces Christ-like purity. And we can say it a flip-flop way as well, that Christ-like purity blossoms from Christ-centered hope. And so in calling us to this Christ-centered hope, uh, John focuses, he gives us three focuses that he wants us to see, three focuses of this Christ-centered hope. And that's what I want to move through as we work through verses 1 to 3 today, three focuses of our Christ-centered hope. Here it is, number one, focus number one, dwell on your permanent identity. Focus number one is to dwell on your permanent identity. Namely, that if you are in Christ, you are a beloved child of God. This is your permanent, eternal identity. You are a beloved child of God. And so we hear verse one, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He's saying, what sort of love is this? And in essence, he's saying, from what country does this love come? There is no earthly parallel for this love. It is unique. It is transcendent. It is holy. It is distinct. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, John's thought here, as I referenced, flows logically from what he's just said at the end of chapter 2, namely that those who are in Christ have been born of God. Notice what he says there in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, born of God. And it's like he pauses at that point and he says, in essence, wait, you have got to see this. You've got to get this. You've got to pause and think about this, dwell on this. In essence, he's saying, do you realize what this means? It's almost as if he's anticipating the the hearts of God's people in hearing this being maybe somewhat dull, maybe even being somewhat lifeless. And it's like he kind of takes those medical uh, paddles that are intended to shock a heart back into its beating. He wants to shock us with the wonder of God's love, to consider the greatness of his love and what it means to be a beloved child of God. And so he's pausing then as he moves with his thought into verse 1 to say, look at this. 
gaze upon this, dwell upon this, you're a beloved child of God. And in so doing, he's, he's saying to all of us who are God's people, God's children through faith in Christ, this is your identity. This is your status. This is your dignity. And it's all owing not to any of our worthiness, but to God and his sovereign, loving choice of us. None of our merit, none of our performance, but his sovereign, gracious, merciful love. And it's a permanent and an eternal identity. You notice there that he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. The force of the verb that he uses for has given is where this permanence, this eternal nature of this love comes out. This is unchanging. He will never draw back his love. As Paul says at the, Rome, at the end of Romans chapter 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ. And he wants us to see this. He wants us to dwell on it. He wants us to value and appreciate and delight on this. And this is the first focus of our hope, to understand our permanent, dignified status as his beloved children. You know, one of the things that we experienced while we were away on vacation is the one car that we have. We've operated with just one car for a few years, and it's worked out okay up to this point. Uh, but our, the transmission on the car died. It was a 2014 car, and, and it was beginning to act funny before we went away to Wisconsin. It was actually while we were in Wisconsin that we found out that it was confirmed dead, had to be replaced. And so then you have to make a decision. Do we want to invest the money? It was a lot more money than the car was worth, or is it time to get a, another car? And so uh, we prayed and, and, and decided to ultimately get another car. So we got a brand-new used car. It's a 2017 uh, a good car, I think, and hopefully a, a good purchase and all of that. Uh, but that all transacted while we were away. That was one of the things that went on. And I'm grateful for the new car, and I enjoy the new car. And one thing that we've been able to do is we've made room in our garage to actually park the car in the garage. Now, for some of you, that's no big deal, but we've lived in our home for over 23 years. I don't think we've ever parked a car in the garage. And so we made room to do that, and we've parked the car in garage in the garage, and it's kind of wonderful. And I find myself occasionally just kind of looking at the car in the garage. <laughs> kind of dwelling on it. Why? Because at a certain level, it's not eternal. I'm not going to die for my car or anything like that. But I value it. I appreciate it. I enjoy it. And so it, 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 it wanders into my thoughts every now and then. I'm not staying awake at night with it or anything like that. I don't think I've made it an idol. I hope not. Uh, I want to guard my heart in that. But my point is, when there's something that you see, we see as valuable, enjoyable, delightful, our mind has a tendency to dwell on it. And that's the point of what John is seeking to get God's people to do, what God wants us to do. He wants us to dwell on the greatness of his love for us. He wants us to dwell on what it means to be his child. He's caused us to be born of him. He's caused us to be regenerated. He's adopted us as his children and made us his own. And he wants us to dwell on that and to know that that is our identity. Now, it's interesting, as he says there at the end of verse 1, when he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He's ultimately wanting us to understand that our identity, the assurance, the confidence, and the hope of our identity is never going to be found in this world. 
and the world, meaning those who are unbelievers, those who are in rebellion against God, they're never going to understand us. They're never going to get us, as it were, because they never understood and they never got the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's ultimately saying, don't look to the world to find your source of identity, to find your source of dignity, to find your source of significance. Find it in the truth by faith that you are beloved of the Father. You're a beloved child of God. And to dwell on that reality, to see that, to look at it, to gaze upon it, and to know that you're a child of God and that that will never change. Don't dwell on your fears. Don't dwell on your anxieties. Don't dwell on your regrets. In Christ, it's all been forgiven. And our assurance is that God is working everything together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And we'll look at that passage in Romans 8 in a few moments. But the first focus of our Christ-centered hope is to dwell on the fact of our permanent identity as God's beloved children. Now, just before we move on to the second focus, I should note that Scripture is very clear. And even in the context of 1 John chapter 3, what John goes on to address in verses 4 through 10 is the reality that every human being is either a beloved child of God or a deceived child of the devil. It's either one or the other. And that's what he makes very, very clear. And what, in large part, gives evidence to whether or not we belong to God and are his beloved children is whether or not there is the, the fruit, however imperfect it may be, of a growing righteousness in our life, growing desire and intent to please God and to obey God. None of us do it perfectly, and we'll talk about that in a moment as well. But if there's a, a, a reality of his life in us that is inclining us to want to grow with him, it in part gives evidence to being children of his. But if that's not present at any level at all, it's indicative of the fact that we are indeed children of the devil. And so it's very important to consider where you belong, where I belong, and what is true in our lives. And so the first focus of Christ-centered hope is to dwell on our permanent identity as his beloved children. Well, that leads to the second focus, and it is this in verse 2, know your future destiny know your future destiny. Namely this, that you and I and all who are beloved children of God are destined for perfect likeness to Christ. That's the essence of what John says in verse 2. Hear what he says, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And this is God's will, God's destiny for all of his beloved children to become like Jesus in purity and righteousness. To come to the full consummation, the full perfection of his life in us. Now, again, this flows from the things he's been saying at the end of chapter 2 in verse 28 about the appearing, about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And for believers, our hope and our confidence in Christ's appearing is that God has brought us into union with Christ. We abide in him. And when John says there in verse 28 of chapter 2, to abide in Christ, it's a command and a call to continue trusting in Christ in all of Christ's sufficiency, in all of his righteousness, in all of his atoning and saving work, to trust in all that he is and to continue to submit through that trust to his will and to his word. And so we abide in him. We're to be trusting in his righteousness, trusting in his sacrifice, knowing that our confidence with Christ before God is not in our performance, but it's in his perfection. In fact, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, listen to what John says there. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And that term propitiation means that he appeases God's wrath and he satisfies God's wrath and he does so through the giving of his body and his blood as a sacrifice, as a substitute for those who would trust him. And so even as we are conscious of and convicted of our sin and our rebellion and our disobedience and our lawlessness against God, it's in Christ and through Christ that we're forgiven, that we're reconciled, that God is favorable to us because he has accepted the sacrifice and the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those who are then born of God and who have come to know him and know that we are his beloved children, he wants us to to grow in righteousness in our day-to-day life. And we have that hope. And so as we presently strive to walk in uh, righteousness like Jesus, as we presently strive to fight sin and to obey God's commandments, and for those who are born of God, as we long to grow in Christ-like righteousness, in our affections, in our ambitions, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, and even as we grieve and sin or grieve when we do sin and we seek to confess our sins to God, even as we did earlier in our service together, we do all of that in the hope of our future destiny that when Jesus returns, we will be fully like him. And the fight with sin in our day-to-day experience will be over. Our sanctification will be complete, will be glorified in his presence. And we're to have this as an element of our hope, as a focus of our hope. Our future destiny is that he will glorify us when Christ returns. And for God's beloved children, we have no fear of judgment in his return because we know that judgment has been satisfied upon Jesus in our place. And instead, for us, his return means the full consummation of all of his saving purposes for us. Now, in Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks about this in some detail. And I'm not going to read the entire passage, but beginning in verse 18, he speaks of the reality of this hope that those who are believers, those who are children of God have. And he says, for instance, in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, I consider, he says, that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see how he's really speaking to these same matters that John is speaking to in a more abbreviated way in 1 John 3? The reality of that time when all who are the children of God will be revealed and the full saving purposes of God will be consummated. This is why a little bit later in Romans 8, he goes on to say in verse 28, I made reference to this passage a few moments ago. He says, and we know, and notice the emphasis on we know this because God has revealed this. This is our future destiny and also our present experience. He says, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. For those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, the intent, the purpose, and the design of God in saving any of us that he has saved is to conform us to the image of his son. Another way of saying that is to make us pure and righteous like Jesus, to conform us to the image of his son. And there in Romans 8, verse 30, as he speaks about uh, the fact that God has predestined and called and justified and glorified us, we yet await the full completion of all of that. But in the mind and purposes and design and plan and work of God, it's all accomplished. And that's why as believers, we're to have this as a focus of our hope, our future destiny, when all of that will come to completion. And even as Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 8, even as it is inferred in what John says in 1 John 3, and we see this many other places in scriptures, brother, Scripture, brothers and sisters, this is what deepens and strengthens our perseverance in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of grief, in the midst of difficulty and sorrow. Those things that are external to us and impact us, as well as those things that are internal to us, even the fighting and the battling and the grief over our own sin and our own uh, lack of trusting God and seeking to honor him at times. All of that we wrestle with. All of that is bound up in many of the things that we suffer. But you see, God is working to perfect us. And because we're his beloved children, he's not going to quit loving us. That means he may bring discipline, but not out of a desire to destroy, but to purify and to mature. And what it means for every single one of us, get this truth, beloved, is that whatever your now is right now, your now is not your future. Your now is not your future. Your future is is what God says through John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Your future is what God says through Paul in Romans chapter 8. And that's to be the focus of our hope. 
the destiny that he has given to us, that he will finish, as Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 6, he's going to finish the work that he began in us. And he wants us to be bolstered in that, strengthened in that, as part of the focus of our Christ-centered hope. And so your now is not your future. And so, beloved, you see how these things are so significant in our day-to-day lives. To know that our future destiny is to be destined for perfect likeness to Christ and that we're to dwell on that in connection with our permanent identity as God's beloved children. Well, this leads to the third focus that we see in verse 3. And you see, hopefully, how these are in the mind and purposes of God all tied together. And the third focus is this, cultivate your present purity. Cultivate your present purity. As you dwell on your permanent identity as a beloved child of God, as you know your future destiny, destined to be conformed to the image of Christ, now then, presently, cultivate purity. And this has to do with internal Christ-like righteousness. And so John says, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And we see how this Christ-centered hope that connects with our identity, that connects with our destiny, is so central and essential to how we grow, to how we are purified. In view of all that God has given to us, he wants us to be conformed to Christ and to be pure. And again, this has to do with internal Christ-like righteousness. Righteousness, as Scripture speaks of righteousness, even as we find it here in 1 John, you notice in verse 29, he says, if you know, in chapter 2, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Righteousness speaks of God's perfect character, the fullness of who he is in his nature, in his will, in his works, and in his word. And so to be righteous is to be in alignment with him, to be in submission to him. And purity, of course, is connected with righteousness, that we would be delivered from everything that is impure, everything that is contrary to that righteousness in our souls, in the depths of who we are. But note that this righteousness, then, is not just an external list of do's and don'ts, If that's all it is to you, you're missing the entire point and the very nature of what this righteousness is. This is righteousness that shares the very nature of God and that is cultivated in the context of a relationship with God in Jesus, in the context of having fellowship with him of being, uh, having union with him, knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that we are beloved of him, knowing that we are his children. And so it's a hope-filled cultivation of righteousness, a hope-filled cultivation of purity that then avoids all of the dangers that we easily get into of just the lists of do's and don'ts or our own ideas of, of legalism or any other number of things that we try to do. No, he wants us to know him and to walk with him, and to cultivate a likeness to him, a purity with him. 
And so this is why that we're called to confess our sins, as we're told in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So a huge element of cultivating purity is coming to terms with our sin, recognizing our sin, and not hiding it, not denying it, not, not justifying it or blaming it on others, but acknowledging it and confessing it to God and trusting his cleansing and his forgiveness in Christ. It means a growing sense to cultivate this purity. means a growing sense of, of seeking to not love the world. Look in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and how this is very direct with what John says here. Verse 15 of chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now that love of the world, as John speaks of it there, is parallel in thought to the issues of idolatry. That's why I believe at the very end of the letter, John says what he does, keep yourself from idols. He doesn't speak of idols directly anywhere else in the letter, but I think that's what he's at or getting at as he's speaking of these matters of loving the world. It's a form of idolatry. It's an expression of idolatry. And as we understand, it doesn't mean that we don't make use of things that are in the world. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy a good meal or enjoy myriads of other things that God gives as unto him, but that we're not putting those above God and they don't become idols for us in any way. And so he wants us to cultivate present purity and becoming more like Christ and pursuing righteousness. And this is to be cultivated, that that fruit of righteousness might be produced. Many of you like to garden in varying capacities in your home. We do Uh, At our home as well, my wife is the primary gardener. I'm just there for some good physical labor every now and then. Uh, But she oversees the gardening that takes place outside. Uh, But gardening is a wonderful, uh, tangible, physical illustration of how we need to tend to our souls. Because gardening is done in the hope that in God's design, there's going to be a harvest. Uh, That with the tomatoes that are planted and with the cucumbers that are planted and with other things that are planted in God's good design, there's going to be a harvest. But because of that hope in a harvest, there's a lot of cultivating work that goes on, right? Getting the dirt ready, getting the soil ready, pulling weeds, tending to things, being alert, being attentive, being continual. Beloved, what a picture that is for the hope of righteousness being continually cultivated in our souls that we're to cultivate such purity and cultivate righteousness in the hope that God is going to be faithful to all that he has promised, to all that he has done, to all that he has accomplished in Christ to produce the fruit that he's promised to produce. And the battle is long. And just like in literal gardening, sometimes you have to wait a long time before the crops produce the fruit that you desire. Sometimes the same is true in our own lives, isn't it? We battle sin. We fight. It takes time. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. And, and growth is often very, very slow and very, very imperceptible. And yet God purposes for us to continue to purify ourselves 
within the hope of all that he has given to us and called us to in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see how these elements of the focus of our hope then tie together to dwell on the reality that we're beloved children of God, to dwell on our future destiny that God is going to bring to fulfillment all of his saving purposes when Christ returns, and therefore to have that hope and to pursue purity and to pursue righteousness in Christ. And so, beloved, look, look, look to Christ. Look to the Christ-centered hope that you have as God's beloved child. It's what he desires for every single one of us. Dwell on your permanent identity, know your future destiny, and cultivate your present purity. And may God give us grace and strength and encouragement to continue to love one another, pray for one another, spur one another on in these matters, that we might help one another keep ourselves from idols. And to know the joy, the assurance, and the fruit that God intends to bear in us and through us, for his glory, for the blessing of others. Let me lead us in prayer. We thank you, Father, for your word, and we thank you for your work that your word reveals. Even as we see the truth and the goodness and the beauty of your work displayed in creation, Father, we see it even more fully in the work of redemption that you have accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that for all of us who, apart from your love and apart from your work, we would be rebels. We would be lost in our sin, enslaved to our sin. And yet you, in grace and love, have saved us. We thank you for your saving purposes and that you have made us your children. And Father, if there are any here this morning who do not have that assurance of of being forgiven of their sins and of being reconciled to you, who are yet under your judgment and wrath and ultimately children of the devil. Father, we pray that you would convict them and that you would draw them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to call out to him and to know that they can be forgiven and reconciled and know the hope of your love. God, in all of these purposes, may you continue to work in us and through us. We thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for the time that we've shared even this morning. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.